Hello, hello, and welcome to the EMG Health Podcast. My name is Gemma Boak. I'm a research scientist turned health advocate and lifelong psoriatic. Today, I'm excited to bring you a discussion on how we can use psychology to help us optimize the management and treatment of women with psoriasis. This educational podcast has been funded by UCB, in which the position and discussions might not necessarily represent the position of UCB. Joining me for the discussion today is Professor Rob Horn, who is a Professor of Behavioural Medicine at the University College London School of Pharmacy, where he is Director of the Centre for Behavioural Medicine. His research focuses on the role of psychological and behavioural factors in explaining variation in response to treatment, and his work extends into broader aspects of health and illness, such as the placebo-nocebo effect and the role of language, emotion, and emotional disclosure in illness-related behaviours and outcomes. So, psoriasis in women of childbearing age. This is such a great topic for discussion today, because when it comes to decision-making as a healthcare professional, there are many variables to consider, and often we rely on our past experiences to inform our decision-making. You may be unsurprised to hear that there are treatment differences between men and women, in part because of the teratogenic potential of some treatments. We know, for instance, that men are more likely than women to receive intensive treatments for moderate to severe psoriasis. Interestingly, though, the difference between the way psoriasis is managed in men relative to women of childbearing age is not as simple as it may initially seem. There is a lot happening beneath the surface, both in the minds of women with psoriasis and in the decision-making process that occurs during a consultation. Let's explore some of the challenges you're likely facing in your clinic. We know that women with psoriasis hold stronger doubts about their personal need for treatment than men, and are less trusting that their treatment is right for them. It is also known that women may be more likely to conceal information from their doctor, especially if it is around a disagreement with the clinician's recommendations. Reasons for this include not wanting to be negatively judged, which indicates a lack of trust. This lack of trust can lead to withholding of information that would be beneficial for clinical decisions and patient care. So the opportunity to initiate what could be a healthy discussion around options is missed. There are also challenges around discussing family planning, a factor which can significantly affect both optimising treatment protocols and a woman's quality of life. A National Psoriasis Foundation survey about family planning and psoriasis found that only 7.4% of patients stated that a discussion about family planning was initiated by their healthcare practitioner. When you add to this the fact that women with psoriasis also have lower rates of pregnancies and delay having children, you can see that psoriasis is having a notable impact on women's lives. You also won't be surprised to hear that women may have concerns about the impact of psoriasis and the treatment of their psoriasis on their unborn baby or their fertility. I know I did. And not addressing these concerns with my dermatologist left me falling back onto the same question many, many times during my 20s. I'd ask myself, do I treat my psoriasis or do I have children? We also know from previous research that women of childbearing age have concerns about the impact of uncontrolled psoriasis during pregnancy 
and are often unaware they can take any treatment during pregnancy. This is not helped by the fact that dermatologists frequently discontinue treatment for pregnant women, with no plan for managing flare-ups, leading to worsening of disease severity. We also know that pruritus is reported by all patients as the most life-quality limiting factor, and women are more likely to report this symptom. Speaking of itching, it really is the worst, and I am saying this from personal experience, though it is backed up by academic studies. And yet, the DLQI is not weighted to reflect the impact pruritus has. For example, getting the highest score for itching or stinging in sexual difficulties, which are also the worst from my personal experience, still only score as a moderate impact on quality of life. If other factors from the questionnaire, for example, leisure or daily activities are not indicated. This shows how the questionnaire could underestimate the impact on quality of life, as the impact of pruritus is not weighted. Underestimating the impact may render an appropriate treatment option, such as systemic treatment, including biologics, unavailable based on clinical guidelines, which require a score of more than 10 on the DLQI. So how can you as a healthcare professional managing women with psoriasis, empower your female patients so together you can optimize the management of their psoriasis and ultimately improve their quality of life? Well, the answer to this lies in the gray matter of Professor Bob Horn. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Now, we've talked about research findings that explore some of the challenges faced from an external perspective. From your perspective as a behavioral scientist, what are some of the internal challenges faced by dermatologists and other healthcare professionals when they're consulting with women of childbearing age with psoriasis? Well, the challenges that dermatologists face are similar to all doctors right across medicine. And that's that there's often a disconnect that, set, you know, we think as clinicians that we're communicating well with the patient. They're giving us good feedback as far as we can tell. But there is often, research has shown, a disconnect between what the patient is really thinking and what they want and what they're expressing within the consultation. So sometimes the consultation can almost seem like an iceberg. Some of it is above the surface and is kind of being discussed, but there's a lot that goes on underneath that isn't. And what research shows is there's often a disconnect between patients and clinicians what the patients are thinking and what the clinicians think patients are thinking are often disparate and the dermatology space is no different there's misalignment between patients and dermatologists and that's been shown by research studies in relation to psoriasis severity and insatisfaction with treatment so why does this occur well from the patient side, what the research has shown is that patients often struggle to express their feelings, doubts, and concern. They say they're fine when they might not actually be. And one of the reasons for that is that patients often have two ideas at the same time. One is, I really like and respect this clinician, and I want them to feel good about what they're doing for me, and I'm grateful for that. And the other idea is, I'm not sure that this treatment plan or, uh, you know, course of action is really the right one for me. I've got some doubts and concerns. 
But if I express those doubts and concerns, then maybe the doctor will interpret that as a doubt in them. And I don't want to compromise that relationship. So that's often going on in the dynamic. And it, the patient may not really be aware of that, but it's a kind of issue that is present within the consultation. It's below the surface and it's part of the iceberg. They may avoid talking about anything uh, uh, that, like, you know, quality of life and family planning. Even if they trust the clinician about the treatment, they don't always have trust to discuss their personal life. And part of the reason for that may be that they don't think that's part of what they can really discuss within the consultation. If you, you know, is, it's a question of, is it perceived to be an allowed topic? something that is within the doctor's remit to consider and to fix any problems in that space. So issues that may be of prime importance to the women uh, may go unexpressed. There's research from um, other areas of medicine around, for example, side effects to medicines which, which would fit this. Sometimes the side effects that the clinician focuses on are the things that might prove to be medically dangerous. And they may look at the test results and say, you're doing great on this treatment, everything's going well. Whereas the woman might be more concerned with subjective side effects. I'm having headaches, is this medicine causing that? I'm having stomach upsets, is this the medicine? Should I stop taking it? And again, these things may be uh, held under the surface. Women may be more likely to conceal information from their doctor, especially if it's around disagreement with the clinician's recommendations or doubts about it. And the reasons for this are those that I've just explained and really could be summed up as saying, you know, they don't want to be negatively judged. And that lack of trust in the ability to be able to express themselves freely within the consultation often leads to them withholding information. Now, I imagine it makes it really difficult for, her, for somebody, uh, for a healthcare practitioner or a dermatologist to um, determine the best treatment plan for somebody, if uh, for a woman, if she's not opening up and being really honest about um, what she's struggling with. I know um, personally I've struggled with that. Um, I've cried sometimes leaving um, the dermatologist's office and it wasn't until you said then about having um, two different thoughts running through your head at the same time because I always found that it, it sometimes it's difficult to verbalise what I'm struggling with and this explains it perfectly but it does leave um, the doctor or, or the healthcare practitioner in a bit of a tricky place. So what can what can somebody do to help the woman in their clinic kind of open up and, and start to build that, the sort of trust you would need to discuss such personal and intimate things as, you know, I'm not sure about this happening, or I'm really struggling with this in this part of my life. You know, the kind of things that women tend to struggle a lot with, but don't openly talk about outside the kind of intimate circles. Yeah. I mean, just as a reflection, we ask a lot of our clinicians, don't we? We expect them to be experts uh, at the medical problem and being able to diagnose and then find the right treatment, often, you know, with complex evidence for and against different treatments. And, you know, that's our 
basic and essential requirement. And yet now we're saying, you know, I'm coming in as a behavioral scientist saying, ah, yeah, but there's all this stuff underneath the surface. So we're asking an awful lot. And, but I think there's um, the encouraging aspect, the sort of good news on this, is that when we deep dive into why we sometimes have this disconnect within consultations, when we understand that in detail by applying behavioral science, actually the solutions can be you know, quite simple and they don't necessarily take more time. It's just using the time differently. So the good news for clinicians is, you know, this isn't about beating them up for not being uh, as good as we would like them to be at medicine. That's far from it. It's really like a way of once we understand the often hidden drivers of women's satisfaction and how they think about treatment, and we can bring that more closely to the surface within the consultation, it can actually make the consultation more efficient and better for both the patient and the clinician. So that's the good news here. Now, if we think about like your question, I'm conscious I didn't really directly answer the question there. And you, I think you were saying, what? how can we understand the clinician's perspective? But I think that's the first thing is to, um, sort of see that this is not um, about the clinicians doing medicine badly. It's a common problem that occurs in all human interactions, okay? And from the HCP's perspective, all of the above can, you know, the stuff that I was talking about with patients and the disconnect can create a missed opportunity for a healthcare practitioner to really understand the psychological impact of uncontrolled psoriasis. From the uh, research that uh, we've done and from looking at published papers, really I would say that's one of the key fault lines, is often the stuff that gets talked about more is the physical aspect of the psoriasis, the, the size of the um, you know skin problem, for example, rather than how it impacts on the individual patient physically, but also psychologically. Because we know that, for example, a small area of skin in, the, in a, um, a visible or sensitive uh, position can be more distressing than a larger area for a particular individual. So I think that's often the missing bit. And previous research has also shown that while dermatologists are often aware of the psychological and social impact of psoriasis. It's not always addressed within the con consultation. And there are a number of reasons for that. I imagine <laughs> some of the conversations may make the um, consultant feel uncomfortable. I know I've struggled in the past to um, be honest about genital psoriasis and the impact that's having on my sex life. And it's something um, I felt uncomfortable initiating a conversation around. Um, and I imagine that works um, on both sides. Like some people just don't find that kind of discussion comfortable, I imagine. Exactly. And you can, you know, if you step inside the uh, clinician's shoes, they may be thinking, well, look, does this patient actually want me to raise those issues? Or would I be making her uncomfortable 
by raising them. So it's rather like a delicate interaction, isn't it? It's almost like a theatre farce, some of this, because it's trying to um, see that the way in which the clinician is thinking, what is my patient thinking, may not actually be what the patient is thinking. But it's all from a well-meaning place. Clinicians are motivated to provide the best possible clinical care and support to their patients. And they work very hard to do that. But sometimes they may not have actually perceived what the patient is really thinking. They, they make an assumption, like we all do in conversations and human interactions. And sometimes, unfortunately, those assumptions are wrong. So a classic one would be, I, I think she would be uncomfortable if I raised the question about the impact of her skin condition on her uh, sexuality and sexual life. So it remains below the surface because both parties think the other would be uncomfortable and it's not really an allowed conversation. That makes sense. It does. Um, how, how could we encourage these kind of discussions? Do you think it is something that should be done on a use case basis? Is this the kind of thing where... Um, learning and building a relationship between the patient and the clinician is is so important and um is is that how you would start to kind of break down those communication barriers yeah so i i think this is because this is um you know a common issue across medical conditions some of the interesting ideas that are um around at the moment are things like what can we do outside the consultation to help patients understand what they, can, what they can get from the consultation and what's the best way to do that. So an example would be, you know, even just giving patients some, a little guide on what to, you know, what you can get from your consultation that says you can raise questions, you know, how does the treatment affect your psoriasis? What can you expect? Is the treatment giving you the outcome that you had hoped for you can uh, you, you can raise these issues you can raise issues about the impact of the condition on your sexuality um you know relationships those are all things that can be allowed within the consultation and that's something that uh the patient could read before going in you know how to get the best what can then happen uh within the consultation is that the um the doctor can say, look, you know, how do you feel about this condition? How is the treatment working for you? Is it meeting your expectations? And they can even list things like, you know, the sort of things you might want to think about are your, how it's affecting your sex life. What are your plans for uh, a family? You know, are you thinking about starting a family, etc., etc. These can be topics that the doctor can suggest the woman considers and thinks about and then it kind of paves the way for it being easy to talk about it within the consultation but you can do a lot just by you know even a simple leaflet or a, a website a support site that patients can go to and the kind of heading is how to get the best from your consultation I often uh, recommend to fellow psoriatics to kind of build a business plan is the way I refer to it. You know, approach your consultation as if it was a business meeting and have that kind of itinerary of things that you want to discuss. 
Yeah, because it's precious time, isn't it? With the with the doctor, it's precious time. It's precious. It's easy to get derailed as well, particularly if you're feeling particularly distressed about your condition. Um, sometimes it's very hard to think clearly, isn't it, when you're feeling quite emotional about where you are? Yeah, yeah. I really like the phrasing of the question that you suggested when you said um, you could ask, how do you feel about your condition? Um, I know personally, I've been asked a lot, am I okay? And I just straight out lie. It's so habitual for me. The words have come out of my mouth before I've even realized they're there. And that kind of, it feels like a very safe question where you could actually start drawing on, you know, um, the other aspects of your life, like how do you feel about your condition? You can talk about, you know, your genitals rises or um, how it's affecting friendships and relationships. It's a lot more sort of open and kind of draws more on that broader impact of living with psoriasis. I, I liked your idea, Gemma, about like, imagine you're preparing for some kind of business meeting, okay? Because you can go into the consultation with like a little list, right, of things you want to discuss. And from the um, from the clinical side, right, from the clinician side, they, they could start the, co- the discussion, you know, start the consultation by saying, look, what sort of things would you like to get out of this consultation today? What kind of things do you want to discuss? And that saves a lot of time because often the early discussions are not really getting to the real thing that the patient is concerned about. And you can just open it up by saying, right, what what do you want to discuss today? What's on your mind? Yeah, I love that. It kind of puts the power back onto the woman to make more decisions and perhaps maybe even feel more comfortable asking questions after treatment options have been discussed. So we've talked about strategies that can help a woman feel more comfortable opening up and talking about some of the challenges that she is facing. Now, I imagine there are challenges that the clinician is also facing when they, um, particularly working with women of childbearing age, for the obvious reason that um, any kind of protocols that they're discussing may have an impact if the woman should fall pregnant. So can we talk a little bit about about decision making during that process? Yeah, well, this, uh, you know, this is a really key issue, isn't it, when treating women of childbearing age, and it's, it's right across the board, because um, some medicines can be very harmful to uh, an unborn child. And we tend to then default that, you know, it's probably better not to prescribe anything for a woman who might find herself uh, pregnant, um, planned or unplanned, right? So that can be the uh, default, you know, because the the desire to protect um, an unborn child is obviously a, a key priority within the consultation. But... Uh, uh, and I think there's evidence that uh, that can be a really difficult issue in the management of women uh, of childbearing age with uh, psoriasis. And I think there are some um, sort of perspectives that seem to be quite common uh, around that among clinicians. And one example from uh, research that my colleagues and I were recently involved in, in interviewing 20 um, dermatologists um, in, in various settings was uh, showed actually from their perspective it helped to uncover some of the challenges 
uh, around this um, particular, you know, area of prescribing. Um, so, for example, some clinicians had the perspective that moderate to severe psoriasis can actually be managed just as well with topicals um, as, you know, systemic treatments or biologics, but it's simply just slower. So you get the same result and it's just slower. And obviously top, they were thinking that topicals would be preferred uh, by the woman and would be by far, you know, the sort of default safe option. And you can understand that um, perspective, okay? But when one then looks from the uh, point of view of the uh, women, it's almost as if they are expected to choose between um, a clear skin or a healthy pregnancy. And there may be, as a result of that, you know, that's the default sort of option, if you like. And there may be little attention paid to the impact of uncontrolled disease on reproductive life planning, sexual relationships, including any issues with fertility or potential distress with the length of time to conceive. And, you know, the negative psychological uh, and social impact of deferring pregnancy or the risks of suboptimal management during pregnancy are also very real for some women. So, you know, it gets more complex as you dig a little bit deeper into the two perspectives, the perspectives of clinicians and the perspectives of women. The actual simple default option of just use topicals, you may not get a good effect that you really want, but you'll get something, may not actually be the best option for some women. Because for them, you know, what if the psoriasis itself is actually impeding uh, family planning um, and impeding normal sexual relationships, when if the psoriasis were controlled, she may consider uh, now's the time to have a family or, you know, um, those sorts of decisions. And in our research, some dermatologists did acknowledge these concerns and recognizing that themselves, you know, that they opted for topical treatments to kind of be on the safe side, even for women with moderate to severe psoriasis, but underpinned by a belief that they were sufficient for disease management given the primary need to remove any risk uh, at all to, uh, you know, should, should the woman uh, find that she was pregnant. When it comes to discussion, discussing the options, um, we mentioned there about feeling like it's the safe option to prescribe topicals. One of the challenges there is we talk about this so often in the psoriasis community, if you... For example, if you fall pregnant, again, um, could be unintentional, as we know that um, around half of pregnancies are, um, is the fact that sometimes women do not go and seek additional help um, when they start flaring, if they start flaring during pregnancy, because the kind of general knowledge is that you will most likely be prescribed topicals, which leaves women particularly if they start flaring, um, struggling, and they may not necessarily reach out to their dermatologist for help. 
kind of highlights the importance of having a, a conversation before um, a woman even falls pregnant. Yeah. And, you know, this is, we, most clinicians now are very um, aware and supportive of the idea of shared decision-making in medicine. But, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that it's harder in the execution than in the concept, right? It's often very difficult to apply in busy clinics. But this is one example, I think, where shared decision-making is vital because uh, the woman's choice and her perceptions are incredibly important here. And as we've already said, they may not be surfaced during the consultation. So it's an area where, you know, yep, okay, some women will be comfortable with the idea of um, less um, effective treatment to make absolutely sure that, you know, because it's topical and all of that, but some may not. Some may be juggling the idea of, I really need to manage this horrible condition for my well-being and you know would make an informed choice to have a more intensive treatment a systemic or a biologic if they really understood the balance of risks and benefits and it, this is one where we really do need to empower the patient to make that decision for herself supported by the doctor I agree. And I know in my third pregnancy, I had a strep flare and it was distressing to say the least. And I was unable to get an appointment with my dermatologist for quite some time. And I personally would have found it beneficial to have known there were more options than topicals, just kind of give me that hope that things were going to get better. That sort of psychological, there is a really deep psychological um, challenge when you are flaring in pregnancy because it's not just um, your physical symptoms either it's the kind of judgments of society for the decisions that you're making because it's you but it's also your unborn child and a lot of the conversations are focused on what's happening in your uterus but actually the mother's mental health is such an important part of that entire dynamic between mother and child yeah and I think um Mother's mental health is a crucial issue in pregnancy, isn't it? And if you have um, severe disease that's really impacting, we know that that can be linked to uh, depression. Uh, depression in pregnancy in turn, um, you know, can, can uh, lead to postnatal uh, depression and problems there. So it's, it's not something that can be brushed under and ignored um, in, in the cases of disease where the impact on the mother is severe. So we have to find a way of trying to, you know, at least find out um, what she's thinking and what her views are about the pros and cons of uh, treatment and the different treatment options. Now, I know when making treatment decisions, I mean, medicine in general is such an experiential process and you learn a lot from case studies. How can experiencing lots of different women in their various states of struggles, whether it's um, struggling to um, have sex in order to conceive, whether it's, um, you know, they're pregnant and they're, they're struggling with their, their condition, 
um, maybe even women who are postpartum, who are still breastfeeding, who are struggling there. I imagine when it comes to the clinician making a decision, they're drawing a lot on past experiences. How can that impact the um, kind of communal decision-making process? Yeah, well, again, you know, we need to pause and try to um, stand in, in the doctor's shoes and recognize how difficult that it, this is because in medicine, you know, everyone's an individual. Every patient has a very um, individual experience of a condition and of a treatment and different uh, needs and preferences. And we're asking clinicians in a very short period of time to somehow find out what they are and then tailor a package of care to meet them. It's a very tall order, okay? And the way in which clinicians will often work, you know, when you, when you delve deep into the mechanism of how we as humans make decisions, the way they'll often work is, for, is to look at patterns, right? To try and say, what can I understand about what would be helpful to most people who look like this individual in front of me? That's kind of what we do with clinical evidence. We do large-scale studies and clinical trials that give us a result that basically say, look, for most people who look a bit like the people in this trial, this will probably be the best course of action. And then we apply that to the individual. But of course, the real skill of medicine, what we want as patients and what clinicians, the art of medicine, if you like, is how you apply that general rule and tailor it to the needs of that individual. But this is very challenging. So we can actually understand a lot about like the mechanism of decision-making and how we work as humans. And we can then apply that uh, as clinicians to understand our behavior when we're the doctor versus our behavior when we're the patient, right? So one of the things we might want to discuss now is how that can work. Okay, so if we look at the science of decision-making and how kind of our brains work, we often think of ourselves as being very rational, especially in the context of a clinical con uh, consultation. So we make our decisions by weighing up the evidence and by making a rational choice based on the costs and benefits of the different options. So it's a rational process. Um, but actually, when we look at the psychology of decision-making, we've really got two kind of aspects to our brain. There's the sort of rational side, which is how we make decisions, uh, you know, which is the best computer to buy? Is it A or B? Which is the best treatment that I should recommend for this patient? Is it A or B? Those are um, the rational part of our brain. But often our behavior and indeed our decisions are also uh, influenced by the subconscious part of our brain, which is often referred to as the emotional or irrational. That's not the right word, really. Neither of those words accurately describe it. A better way is to draw on ideas that um, Kahneman put forward, which is the two aspects to our brain, the conscious and the unconscious, are rather like thinking fast and thinking slow. They're also called system one 
and system two. So the unconscious or instinctive part of our brain is system one. And it's the most primitive part of our brain. We have, it evolved to enable us to make decisions quickly without having to think about it. So for example, um, our ancestors um, might have uh, ran at the sight of something that was um, orange and black striped without having to think, that looks a bit like a tiger, I should get out of the way. So we have instincts which don't engage our constant conscious mind, but they inform our decision, stay put or run. And it's thinking fast. The rational part of our brain is thinking slow. And there's an overlap between those two, because even when we are thinking slow and making a rational decision, it's never entirely based on just the facts. It's also strongly influenced by our beliefs about that decision. And within the consultation, even when selecting what might be the right treatment for a patient or a treatment that we're going to recommend, clinicians like all humans are influenced by these two sides of our brain. Another way of looking at it is um, an analogy that an American social psychologist called Jonathan Haidt came up with, which is the idea of an elephant and a rider. So the rider is the conscious, decision-making, thinking slow part of our brain, and the elephant is the unconscious, more primitive, instinctual part of our brain. And our behavior is a combination between the elephant and the rider. Now, the thing about this analogy is if we were to bet on, say the elephant wanted to go one way and the rider wanted to go another way, who do we think would win? I just say, can we actually put money on this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who do you think would win, Gemma? It's definitely going to be that elephant and put down five pounds. There is. And the elephant would. So, you know, the, and that's the point about our subconscious emotional, instinctive part of our brain is it can be very powerful. It can have a powerful effect on um, our decisions and on our behavior, even though we may try and moderate it. The rider might try and moderate it. Okay, so understanding decisions in medicine involves understanding how our instincts and our subconscious brain might also influence decisions within the clinic. So let's say a clinician has a pregnant woman who comes into clinic and she has psoriasis. Now, I know when I've talked to dermatologists in the past at conferences and the like, they joke that psoriasis is their bread and butter. So they see a lot of people coming into the clinic with psoriasis. Do you think it's a system one decision then to prescribe um, topicals and phototherapy? Well, it's it's more like we don't kind of think about it as, you know, separate systems. It's either system one or system two. The way we look at it is to understand that system two decisions, you know, slow and rational, can also be influenced by system one. And how that works is that we develop like defaults, or they're sometimes called heuristics. They're if-then rules, right? 
So they're sort of like, you know, if I see this, I think it's more likely to be this, right? And those system one things will kick into play. So some examples might be, uh, and, and they, they can cause, um, they often get referred to as certain biases, right? So a system one heuristic or pattern of thinking might be woman of childbearing age, best to use topicals, right? So we don't even have to think about that. What we're drawing on is ideas about if this, then that. If she is of that age, then topicals best, right? And we don't really have to think about that. It's there. It's a kind of given, right? And it's more subconscious. Where the conscious decision would come in is, does that rule or heuristics, rule of thumb is a good term to describe these, does that rule of thumb really apply to this individual woman sitting in front of me? And rules of thumb are not bad. They're good. They help us make decisions. They speed things up. And often they give us the right decision. Our instinct is right. Our rule of thumb is right. The point is they're sometimes wrong. And it's only when we recognize that it's a rule of thumb rather than something that should apply to this individual in front of us that we can overcome the elephant and actually tailor a decision that's right for that individual patient. So what you're saying is the, these are rules of thumb. They feel like you have made the right decision and what you need to do as a clinician is to question whether that is the right decision for that specific person exactly. in front of you. Exactly, because it could be the right decision for many patients, but not necessarily that one. And you can't, you can't tell necessarily and unless you ask or unless you think about it, right? So I can give some examples because these rules of thumb can create biases, right? That sort of lead us in a particular direction, which may not be right for that uh, individual patient. An example uh, that came out of our research interviews is availability bias is one, right? That's, these are things that quickly come to mind when we're evaluating a topic or making a decision, things that are right there in the foreground of our mind, right? They're available. Um, so if I tell you this little story from the interview, okay, a dermatologist had to do a biopsy to see whether a patient had an inflammatory problem, uh, which could lead to scarring. And there was a chance that the patient might be pregnant. Um, so although local anesthetics um, would be needed for the procedure and are fine and safe in pregnancy, the clinician said he didn't perform the biopsy because she'd been trying with IVF for months. And she returned four weeks later and had actually lost the baby. And the concern that the clinician had was that she could have easily associated the loss of the baby with his administration of the local anaesthetic although it would actually not be a causal factor. So that is, a, is an experience, a possible um, concern that would be very available. You know, the next person that uh, comes in and, he, and the doctor thinks, should I do a biopsy? It's right. Mm, maybe I'm going to avoid that one. 
The other one is where it's often called being burnt. Uh, we've recently done some studies of how doctors prescribe um, intensive antibiotic treatment for people in um, intensive care units. And there they're often reluctant not to prescribe because they have a past experience where they've delayed prescribing and the patient has deteriorated very quickly. And although they've had many experiences where nothing bad has happened, it's the bad one that is most available, right? When you come to the next decision, it's the bad thing that stands out. And that's called an availability bias. Um, another example is a, a confirmation bias. And that's like, uh, we found an example of that where a dermatologist believed that the woman of childbearing age with psoriasis can be treated equally as well with topicals as systemics or biologics and made the decision to persist with topical treatment, even though the patient in the case didn't have clear skin on topical uh, examination or, or through uh, topical uh, treatments rather and phototherapy. So it wasn't really working for her, okay? But because she wasn't saying actively, this is not working, I'm not happy, it sort of confirmed the bias that this is the best thing to do. So the available evidence was confirmatory. But of course, if there'd, uh, it'd been possible to dig a bit deeper and find out what the patient was actually thinking, it may have countered that uh, bias rather than confirming it. Another issue is that as humans, you know, we take the path of least resistance because we're busy. Why create work if we don't need to? So there's a status quo bias, which is just do what you've always done and what is familiar. And you see, unless someone is saying to you, hey, this is not working for me. I don't like this. Again, it confirms your bias. Let's just do what we've always done. And unless you have quite strong evidence to the contrary, you just, we all as humans just keep doing that. We're creatures of habit. And these are called defaults. And there's also a sort of final bias that we need to be aware of is what's called a present bias, where the tendency to choose smaller immediate rewards than larger later rewards. Um, so conversations with women of childbearing age might feel very challenging, particularly if we think the patient might not want to have that discussion or would be worried, be worried about them disengaging. So what we do is we don't have that conversation and it feels okay. That feels like a good uh, consultation for now, even though we might, if we really thought about it, think, have I really solved the key problem for this patient? I really like that. I like how what we talked about earlier feeds into this with the question, um, what would you like to discuss? I imagine that would help um, address confirmation bias and maybe status quo bias. Yeah. Um, can you, I mean, it must be really difficult, particularly when you talked about availability bias, because if you've experienced something and you've emotionally reacted to that, 
I mean, it really is going to be difficult to not let that cloud your thinking. So, I mean, what what strategies can can be used to help overcome that? It's an elephant, right? And they're difficult to control. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, how can we overcome it? But actually, when you know, part of it is just recognizing. So, the first issue is just recognizing that that's how we work, right? That as humans, that's how we work, and also it's. It's sort of easier for the clinician if they can say, look, what's on your mind, right? What would you like to discuss? Tell me, how, how is it for you? What are you currently experiencing and thinking, right? Because then the patient does the hard work for us. They tell us what the issues are, and that allows us to... It takes the heat off, right? Because without the patient telling the clinician who they are as an individual and what their issues really are, the clinician has to guess, right? And it's impossible to guess. So what we do is we bring in all the heuristics and biases, our rules of thumb. Most women who look like this woman would probably be okay with this. That's our rule of thumb right? So it's entirely reasonable. And the the way we can um, do it differently is really just by asking the person and making it okay for her to say what she really wants and what she's really thinking and what's really bothering her. And most people will talk if they feel, you know, that's allowed. I agree. I really like how the same actions simultaneously empower the woman who is um, in the office and also helps the clinician overcome any biases. Yeah, because they both want the same thing, right? This is like, you know, it's almost a, a sort of tragicomic scenario, right? And lots of, this isn't just about doctors and patients, lots of human interactions, you know, we all do this, right? There's like, we don't surface the real issues and it's a lot of it is below the surface of the iceberg. But it's actually usually in the co- consultation, both the patient and the clinician want the same thing, which is a patient who has received good quality care and feels better as a result of that treatment or encounter with the clinician. They both want that. They've both got the same aim. They're a team in striving for the same thing. Do you think the same questions would help address present bias? Because, you know, we're all tempted by short-term wins. (laughs) Well, actually, I I think it would because what it it does is it makes the long-term goal the present achievement. Now, what I mean by that is, say, for example, you know, you get to the, the thing the woman is most concerned about is the impact on her sex life. And there's no support. She can't find it difficult to get, even talk about it or get any help with that. And it's becoming depressing, right? Now, if you surface that, even if you can't solve it instantly, that will make her feel better. Just being, there's good evidence that just being able to express our, our hidden um, thoughts and feelings and um, concerns can actually improve our mood and well-being directly. So you get a positive result in a consultation like that um, very quickly. 
even if you can't fix the problem straight away. And the patient comes out thinking, that was really helpful. So we've got these ideas. Um, we've got some great questions that we can use, um, a clinician can use to help build this relationship um, with the women in their clinic. Are there any other strategies that a clinician could use to try to help overcome any biases? Yeah, so it's really just, I think if clinicians are, and most clinicians are interested in, um, you know, improving um, their, their consultation, doing the right thing. Um, so part of it is just, you know, listening to this podcast, reflective practice, right? There's a concept called reflective practice in medicine, which is where as clinicians, we're encouraged to think about and reflect on um, practice. So just doing that, thinking, how do I make my decisions? Am I making assumptions? Are my rules of thumb really delivering the best quality care for the individual woman of childbearing age? And um, have I empowered the patient to discuss the social and psychological impact of her condition? Also, to you know, discuss issues around family planning. Uh, does she want to have that conversation with me? Am I enabling that? And am I supporting her to be part of the decision-making process? Am I taking these factors into account when considering possible treatment options? Have I checked the guidelines? Actually, is my rule of thumb still current? Medical guidelines change really quickly and clinicians are massively busy. It's very difficult to keep up with everything. But, and so some, but you know, the reality is that rules of thumb can sometimes fall behind current guidelines. Ask that question. And really then it's, has my patient made an informed choice about the prescribed treatment? Does this really meet her needs? What are her expectations? Are they realistic? And are there things that I could be doing to help explain the condition and treatment, which means that she will be more effective at self-managing it? And I think there's something really simple that can be done, which kind of changes uh, the consultation quite markedly. And it sort of turns on its head what we might consider to be uh, a more traditional medical consultation. Often the first question that the doctors um, ask can be answered either by a yes or no, or by the patient simply saying, okay. So it'll be, how have you been? How are you today? Um, okay, you know, it can, it, it's easy. It, it's it, often much better to ask an open question as a third one, that you can't just answer with a simple okay or yes, thank you, doctor. So something like, what's on your mind today? What would you like to discuss in this consultation? And you know, if that we start the consultation with that and we've pre-briefed the patient, as I was talking about earlier with how to get the best from your consultation that says, you know, you can bring a little list of things you want to talk about. You can talk about things like family planning issues, sexuality, etc. Right? So if we could do both those things, then what we're doing is empowering both parties within the consultation to get 
more out of it and to do that more efficiently. And it could actually save time in the consultation rather than taking more time. Oh, that was summarised perfectly. Thank you, Professor Rob Horn, for your time and your insight today. And thank you all very much for joining me on this podcast. I hope you found today's discussion around how behavioural science can help us optimise the management of treatment for women with psoriasis as perspective shifting as I did. This is the third podcast exploring the experiences and opportunities to improve the outcomes for women with psoriasis. You can find the other episodes at EMJ Dermatology Podcasts. Be safe and stay well. Bye for now.